Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have with us a very special guest, Dr. Stephen P. Halbrook. Thanks for being here, Steve. Glad to be on the show again, Lucas. Thank you. Uh, and we have guest co-hosting with us today, Miss Miss Mrs. Heather Allen, joining us, <laughs> joining us from North Carolina, Hi. and she is a firearms educator. I am, and concealed carry instructor. Woohoo! Woohoo! Awesome. The book that we're talking about today is this wonderful book called America's Rifle. The subtitle: The Case for the AR-15. And as I just put out to my community, I think it's the best Second Amendment academic book, textbook, and I'm calling it a textbook. Don't be scared of it. I mean that as a compliment. It is an academic book on the Second Amendment in print, in, as far as I can tell. And I think it's one of the best constitutional law books I've ever read. And I, not to say I've read a lot, but I have a PhD in this stuff. So... I really do appreciate the work you've put into this, Steve. It's richly footnoted and there are pictures in it, which is also wonderful. Sometimes it's good to take a look at what you're looking at, especially when you're talking about features. And um, so thank you for writing it. Yeah, Lucas, thank you for having me again. And by the way, um, none of my previous books on the second amendment had illustrations, but I was, sternly told you really have to have photographs and, and diagrams in this book because most people or a lot of people don't know what you're talking about yeah. you know what what's a, a pistol grip what's a muzzle break uh so I, right. I got permission from colt to use one of their diagrams i actually took a photo from my own uh, user's manual for the ar-15 sporter h-bar which is a fine target rifle and and that's the um, the diagram that you see, the diagram showing the parts, because once again, you've got these judges making decisions and um, members of the public and, uh, you know, what's a retractable or telescoping uh, shoulder stock? What, what are these parts? So, OK, let's look at a picture. Yeah, you have to. What I appreciate what I really appreciate about your book is for me, it filled in a lot of the statutory stuff that I was missing uh, in the 20th century. There were a number of uh, gun control bills that were passed. And so let's take some highlights. One is the the 1986 bill, the firearm. I uh, uh, forget what it was called. Firearms Owners Protection Act. FOPA. OK. Mm -hmm. Yep. And. That was signed by President Reagan, right? Correct. So um, there was that was a mixed bag, as you said. But the notable thing about that that was negative was that it was the first time in American history that mere possession of a firearm was banned. And it was banned without any nexus to any constitutional provision like the Commerce Clause. And uh, previously, these bills, like the 1968 bill was the, the major bill before that. They had always been careful not to ban mere possession but to, to and to link it to some explicitly articulated delegation of power to Congress 
like the like the interstate commerce clause, right? Or the importations clause. Right. And, and you can go back to the National Farms Act in 1934, and that was passed right. under the power to tax, to raise revenue. Right. And the way they justified registration was you could thereby prove you had paid the tax. And so those weapons were not banned. They were required to be registered, although it was a hefty registration fee, $200 at the time in 1934 in the Depression. But in 68, uh, the, the major new law that was passed, the, the Gun Control Act Title I, everything in it was um, had some kind of nexus to interstate or foreign commerce. Even the, the uh, restrictions on felons in possession of guns uh, none of that applied unless the the gun had traveled with an interstate commerce. So mm. yeah, it was a it was kind of a trick. It was a superficial way to make something apparently constitutional, uh, but at least they they tried. Um, now at that time, many members of Congress didn't think that the Second Amendment meant anything. It didn't ap apply to individuals. And mm. and if you even go up to 1986 when. Uh, machine guns were banned. Any machine guns that were not legally possessed at the time the law uh, went into effect. Um, that was the first time there was no pretense at um, having some relation to interstate commerce or to the power to tax. And and then that same thing happened again uh, in 1994 when Bill Clinton signed the so-called federal assault weapon ban. There was no commerce nexus there either. And in fact, uh, the proponents argued in Congress, and I've got all this documented in the book, that the Second Amendment only applies to militias. It's a collective right of states, and there's no individual right to keep and bear arms. Well, as fate would have it, that law was only on the books for 10 years. There was a, um, a clause that would just cancel itself unless reenacted, and there were Department of Justice did studies and found it didn't have any effect on crime. So it was allowed to expire. And wow. but the interesting thing is, as many ways as as Congress has sought to impinge on Second Amendment rights, uh, those are the only two instances in which they have actually banned real guns. They, they did ban plastic pistols in the, I think, yeah. 84, but there weren't any. So. <laughs> Uh, and there, there still aren't any. So, uh, yeah. we, we, you know, they all have metal barrels. Right. Uh, yeah. So it, it does indicate something to be said for the our our history and tradition in the 20th century and, and beyond. That's that that's issue of the delegation of powers. And that's a limitation on Congress has totally been lost in on colleges, as far as I can tell. And I try to bring it back in my classes. And that's why I find this work to be so interesting because the history and tradition up until that time, up until the eighties, the, the commerce clause appeared to mean something. It appeared to be not a, a blank check where you could do whatever you wanted in Congress. And that attitude I think is expressed in the Lopez decision, which you reference. Yes. In 1995 um and as far as i can tell you would know better than me that was the first time the supreme court said you can't just keep doing whatever you want under the commerce clause is that fair to say 
Yes, you know, the Commerce Clause really started to get expanded, and this is pretty well known under the Roosevelt administration in the yes. 30s. And you had the, the wheat field case where a farmer was growing his own wheat for his own con consumption, and the Supreme Court held that uh, federal restrictions could apply under the Commerce Clause. And so it, it gets expanded uh, further and further. Um, I argued a case called Prince versus U.S. 1997, where the government tried to rely somewhat on the Commerce Clause, and that didn't go over. We won that case uh, five to four. Scalia wrote a wonderful opinion. Uh, but then the, the the boundaries keep getting pushed. And so um, Congress banned mere possession of a firearm on a schoolyard. Now, that's a matter for state law. If states want to regulate firearms at different places, that's within their purview. But um, Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote that opinion, and he said that you, you can't just have anything and everything supposedly being under the Commerce Clause. There's no commercial nexus to anything here where this this um, young guy named Lopez possessed a gun on school property. Um, there was no commerce involved. There was no interstate anything. So the back. Uh, there was another decision after that uh, regarding the so-called Violence Against Women's Act where, you know, the Congress came back and pushed this local domestic affair regulation some more. And it's like the Supreme Court was giving them kind of a spanking and saying, look, we just told you, you can't do this. Yeah. Uh, stretching the Commerce Clause beyond all all bounds. And but they they continue to do it. Um, you know, they. All the things that end up getting passed and We've got some a good Supreme Court right now, though, and we've got some yeah. pushback. Uh, we've got a major case coming up about the so-called uh, Chevron rule of deference, where agencies make up powers and and then they go into court and say the court has to um, defer to us because we're the experts. And uh, so there's there's some good pushback by the court. Well, I I really appreciate the the care in the book uh, coming at this from the angle of, of the, the limitations on Congress by the commerce clause. And the, that, that comes to bear in California where I am because California didn't even think twice about just banning mere possession, not, not linked up with anything regarding commerce at all, you know, uh, to where, and this is my experience and other people's experience in California was if you had a rifle with certain features and it, even if it was, it was already registered because after a certain date, everybody had to, all guns were automatically registered at the point of sale. If you bought it brand new, um, the, I think it was at 2014, I think. So this is pretty late in the game that California wanted you to register everything at the point of sale. But uh, you could have had one that was registered with the features, these bad features that, that are called an assault weapon. And that's all explained in the book. Everybody get the book and see what that means. It's not that hard to understand. You might think, I'm not getting this because it sounds stupid. That may be proof that you are getting it, <laughs> <laughs> Un unfortunately. But you could uh, wake up having done nothing. 
having done no overt act, not let alone done something evil, but not done nothing at all, no overt act, and become a criminal. Because it, the, the way the law in California was, and you have a whole chapter on this, this, this series of California laws, was that they just say on a certain date, if you possess a, a rifle or magazine like this, then you become a criminal just you know, by started exist, in just by existing. Started in 1989, California Pat was the first state to pass a so-called assault weapon ban um, based on features. And they've revised that over time. We we I, I filed the first lawsuit against it. Yeah. Um, it was right. um, decided by the Ninth Circuit. They said the Second Amendment doesn't apply in California. The Fourteenth right. Amendment doesn't incorporate it. And there was later Ninth Circuit cases saying the Second Amendment's a collective militia right. Right. So um, California goes on. I mean, in the meantime, we've got District of Columbia versus Heller. The Second right. Amendment's an individual right. Mm -hmm. um uh, the the chicago case mcdonald versus chicago it applies second amendment applies to the states uh one thing after another and california continues to make these laws more stringent and to, to make it realistic about what's really going on so they they passed a law that a semi-automatic rifle with a detachable magazine in itself is not banned but it is if it, it's got two or more features now it's only one but my favorite one is the um, a pistol grip that protrudes conspicuously beneath the action. And so that's just a common pistol grip to help you stabilize the rifle to hold it to your shoulder and aim. They made up this uh, fairy tale about it's to, um, to spray fire from the hip so you can kill as many people as quickly as possible. This is just anti-gun phraseology. Um, but... So now they, they've also defined what is a conspicuously protruding pistol grip. And it's one where more than any of your fingers, let's illustrate with my fingers, are below um, the action when firing. So if you're firing like that, it's, it's okay. It's Second Amendment protected. But if any one of these fingers is below the trigger finger when firing, uh, then it's, you can ban it. And so you, it loses Second Amendment protection by depending on where your fingers are when firing it. Um, and so they, every time California passes this kind of nonsense, companies uh, make products to get in compliance with the law. And so in California, there's a device called the fin. What you, it doesn't allow you to wrap your your thumb and forefinger around. Um, the a pistol grip and instead it it makes your thumb be pointed up so that you're not holding it as stable i call this the hitchhiking position because your your thumb is up like that so instead of holding it in a stable way like that you're having to hold the grip like that and yeah. suddenly it's got second amendment protection right you have <laughs> you have a, you have a number of very funny and i don't know if you were trying to be funny but that you have some really dry sentences in here that are bracing and they're funny, but they're also sad. Like, for example, yeah. you say uh, on the bottom of 211, uh, 211, only rifles that are inaccurate and hard to control are apparently protected by the Second Amendment. <laughs> Look, a, a federal judge ruled that 
the the plaintiffs argued uh, they're more accurate and they're easier to control by having these features. And the judge said, well, yeah, th duh, that's why California bans them. They don't want them to be as accurate. And, and of course, her ruling was there's no Second Amendment protection here. And uh, wow. so with that logic, you should be able to, like, ban sights on a gun. You don't want them to be accurate uh, because that makes them more deadly. Um, does any of this make sense to you, Heather? It does not. But coming from California, it does not surprise me, unfortunately. But you I used a, to work. Do you have a history in California? Of course. Yeah, I was there for 39 years. I worked for the California Rifle Pistol Association. We would get phone calls all the time. Am I in compliance? And we would have to email our members flow charts like start from here is the rifle center fire keep going and then uh it pretty much always ended up to yeah you're a felon <laughs> so. have you all, have i've worked by the way i've worked very closely with crpa for many years chuck Mich michelle is an old friend and uh they've got a great legal team out there they do he's yeah. great yeah chuck had chuck came on a couple times last year to walk us through the brewing stuff um uh heather have you ever shot one of these uh fin grip rifles before i have not shot i know what you're talking about but no i haven't actually shot one myself you've seen them but though, right? I did, the last time i shot an ar was in illinois with a friend who also left california and you know things are bad when people in illinois are making fun of you for your bullet button on your rifle for your mm -hmm. your california compliant ar so it was kind of and now fun. the that person needs to get out of illinois because now they've got the same yeah. stuff that's true yeah it does seem to be that there there's just a brazen reaction against the heller decision and the mcdonald decision and now even the Bruin decision. Bruin. So um, how do you make sense of that? Well, the, 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 there's like six states that are the usual suspects. Yep. California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, New York, you know who they are. Um, whenever there's a, a pro-Second Amendment decision from the Supreme Court, they do everything they can to make life harder for gun owners. And so when uh, Heller came down, the... District of Columbia people whose law had been invalidated, they went out there on the steps of the Supreme Court and said, we're really going to get revenge now. So they passed all kinds of new bans, making life much more difficult for people who just own bolt action rifles, anything. And so we litigated that in a case called Heller II. Uh, we and in that case, two of the three judges said they upheld the so-called D.C. assault weapon ban. But there was a th third judge who wrote a dissent, and his name was Brett Kavanaugh. I've heard little did we know that, of course, he would become a Supreme Court justice. Um, but th then you've got the, uh, the the Bruin case, and they've done the same thing. The court said you have to treat everybody fairly and equally. So uh, if, if A gets a concealed weapon permit, then B has to get the same permit uh, if he's got good character uh, if she passes whatever tests are required, things like that. Uh, you, you can't pick and choose and only give permits out to people who are really rich or they're celebrities or they paid the right bribes. Uh, and Heather, I know from being from California, you know, a lot of money 
used to go to sheriffs to get carry permits. Wow. Um, so, so, um, so then in reaction to that, there's massive resistance by those same states like New York, for example. Okay, we'll give carry permits out, but we're going to make it illegal to carry a gun in most places. And so um, the, the subway, um, Times Square, everywhere. And, 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 and then you have to, if you're a shop owner, uh, it's a, a felony to take a gun into somebody's shop unless they sign, have a sign out inviting you as a gun owner, which would be um, the death knell for a business in New York because you've got anti-gun people. They're forcing commercial establishments to take a political position. Yeah. They're forcing speech. Mm-hmm. That's a that sounds like a constitutional issue to me. So all that's being litigated right now. There's yeah. several cases pending in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. There's a Fourth Circuit. The Maryland so-called assault weapon ban is is pending. We've got litigation against the Illinois ban in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, a, a court in Oregon just uh, upheld their magazine ban. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on. Heather, uh, wh why did you leave California? Did it have something to do with firearms? How much time do we have in this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, you could Let me count the ways, right? <laughs> yeah. um, there's a you lot of reasons, and it's funny you mentioned it, because I, I just put my name in to run for our city council here, and I say, it's you know, yes, I am from California. Please don't hold it against me. But it's a yeah. huge reason why I'm running because I don't want to see those failed policies, no matter how well-intentioned they may have been. Follow me here to the free state of North Carolina. But definitely the gun laws. Um, I was not feeling very easy about the growing homeless encampments with um, just normalizing it and having my my daughter have to deal with that on a daily basis. And then not to mention how expensive it was so those are those are like kind of the top reasons there have you ever shot an ar-15 oh before? yes, yes what's your impression of the weapon um it was heavy <laughs> <laughs> i don't have the strongest arms but that's why i usually shoot handguns but i just remember thinking it was pretty heavy i didn't think it was too much of a kick or or the the recoil it was just kind of the, the heaviness but i do remember feeling like um it was very accurate and being able to shoot farther distances than a handgun, it was it was fun. Well, if it's accurate, it must not be protected by the Second Amendment, apparently, because <laughs> if it's easy to handle, I mean, you know, I know that you mainly shoot pistols, Heather, because I see yeah. always see you shooting pistols. But I've noticed all of them have pistol grips that protrude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I do something about how, that. How, how do you... <laughs> How do you feel about a pistol grip on a gun? Do you think it's helpful to have a pistol grip on a pistol? They, they need to devise th the thumb thing for the pistol grip for a pistol. Where a you, yeah, yeah. you can only, or the fin, yeah, you can only hold it like that so that it's shaky and uh, inaccurate. I, One I, of the best stories I've heard with AR-15s is um, in Florida, a nine-month pregnant woman her house was broken into by multiple uh, home invaders and they had her husband at gunpoint and she shot and killed one and the others fled, but she used an AR-15 and she was nine months pregnant. So, Right. There's, there's a number of stories like that. And 
I've got some of them detailed in the book, but there's no way to keep track of all these. And these judges upholding the ban say things like, well, you don't need that kind of gun. Um, you know, it used to be before California's ban passed in 89, they used, the anti-gun movement used to say rifles and shotguns good, handguns bad. Uh, and then you turn the clock up to Heller. They even argued that in Heller, by the way, D.C. did. Uh, rifles are good. Um, handguns bad. And then Heller says handguns are protected. So after that, they argued the opposite. Wow. Rifles bad, handguns good. Funny how that works. Continue, yeah, they continue to make that argument. And they say you really don't need one of these rifles and you don't need a magazine that holds more than 10 rounds. Or um, And... But Heller said that that's for the American people to choose. You, yeah. the, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so the people have the leading say. And if the guns are in common use, that's the test the Supreme Court has adopted. And there's there's no uh, right long gun um, more in common use than the AR-15. I'm glad you brought it to the common use test, the history of tradition test, uh, because last year we had... Uh, the attorney that won in California, the Miller versus Bonta case, which was the assault, one of the assault weapon cases. The other one, as you mentioned in the book, I think it was, you said it, dis, it was just dismissed, right? It was, it was, there wasn't even a trial. And uh, this case, the Miller case, there was a full trial, as you mentioned in the book. And, um, it would all of the issues were aired out and he used the history and tradition test before Bruin. So then Bruin now vac I, I guess is it, you know, has something to do with how it's being decided now. But um the this book, the whole deal of this book is taking that history and tradition test and saying, let's run with this, and where does the AR fifteen come out on that? And another issue that in the history and tradition that I really appreciated about the book was the civilian marksmanship program and, and the narration of that whole program and how it relates to the militia. And it's a little counterintuitive, I think, for some people to think that uh, the act, the, the usefulness of the firearm as an analog to what is used in the military to train people that might need to be called up in an emergency, that's actually protected under the Second Amendment specifically. And that the civilian marksmanship program, and then there was a board. What was the name of that board again? It was a rifle board? Yeah, the National Board for um, Rifle Marksmanship. And that's still in existence. Well, so if you look back at the founding, uh, all able-bodied males had to be in the militia and they had to provide their own arms. The guns were not provided by um, the states or the federal government. The Militia Act of 1792 had that language and that was a federal law that reflected state law. We get up to the early 20th century and that, that had never really been enforced a whole lot. Uh, and it was repealed and the National Guard was formed. But at the same time, um, the encouragement to rifle practice. That was a, a big uh, project of Theodore Roosevelt, by the way. He was really into the promotion of rifle marksmanship. And uh, th there's um, there's a little booklet why schoolboys should be taught to shoot. And he wrote a 
uh, I think a preface to it, uh, praising the uh, the kid from New York City who won the rifle marksmanship uh, competition that year. Uh, something that Justice Scalia used to do in high school there also, by the way. Uh, but in the teens and 20s, the Congress enacted laws to promote rifle marksmanship. And the National Rifle Association was the organization that was organizing in conjunction with the military uh, the promotion of marksmanship among civilians and also helping to train people who might go into the military. And so when World War II comes along, you had that program together, again, with NRA backing, training a lot of these young men who were going to go abroad and they're going to be risking their lives. And they really wanted to be able to shoot to protect themselves. And the the program has, has had its ups and downs. It's a political football, but it's still in existence. It's a private corporation now, but they get M1 Garand surplus guns from the military. Um, you can join um, gun clubs and qualify. You can you can buy guns and ammunition. Basically, yeah. ultimately, it comes from the government. And right, uh, right, it's right. been a very successful program. And and the key feature for our purposes is that the the usefulness of that program is to train people in arms that would be used, they would encounter in military service, right? So that's the whole that, point of the program. That's why the three main guns, there's a lot other other competitions too, but the three main guns over the decades has been the M1 Garand, the M14 or um, civilian equivalent, like the M1A from Springfield, yeah. uh, or the AR-15 semi-auto version of the M16. And those are the ones they want you to train with. And um, at this point, they've made the AR-15 so accurate, they don't have a disadvantage. You know, you, you shoot out to 600 yards, and if there's wind, wow. and you've got a smaller bullet, then uh, the wind can move it around. But the AR-15s have gotten a lot more accurate. And and um, I, I used to do that competition. It's, it's very, uh, it's very it's quite a sport i'll just put it that way uh and it's wonderful training for young people and older people as well and heather when you were at crpa i know uh that they are deeply involved in the civilian marksmanship program as well we had a lot of phone calls asking about that it sounded like a great program now what i love about your book is that you clarify that although the militia oftentimes is has been, been to include males from 18 to 44 that the right to keep and bear arms wasn't restricted to those people right so so women any anybody could participate in this program is that right i mean the second amendment refers to the right of the people to keep and bear arms First Amendment, the right of the people peaceably to assemble. Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure from uh, unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, the people has one meaning. It means all Americans uh, who are member, uh, they're all, all of the members of this political community called America. And you, you don't, it, the Second Amendment doesn't say um, that, that certain people the government designate designates has, has a right to keep and bear arms or members of the militia have a right to keep and bear arms uh, it, 
it couldn't be clearer. And yet we had, uh, especially after the 1968 gun law passed, um, you had judges starting to um, make rulings that this is some kind of collective right. And we're real smart. Most people aren't as smart as us and they don't understand. But the people doesn't really mean the people. And fringe doesn't mean fringe. Arms doesn't include handguns. You know, you had one ruling after another like that till finally in 2008, the Supreme Court cleared the air with the Heller decision. What what it make gives me, what keeps me up at night, though, Steve, is the five four thing, and I I'm interested in the politics of it, just like the Lopez case, and just like Prince, that you won. By the way, you're so humble because when you mentioned Prince in the in the book. I mean, if it was me, I'd been like, by the way, that was me, Woo! Yeah. <laughs> you know, but you're like, yeah, this, this happened, you know, and you don't even mention that you're the one that won the case, but, uh, yeah. So congratulations for being so humble, but, um, well, the book's yeah, not about me. It's about the second. That's amendment. right. That's right. <laughs> but those were five, four decisions. And so the politics of this thing, um, keep me up at night because these decisions are great but they don't just drop out of the sky out of nowhere there is a history and tradition of getting those supreme court decisions getting the people on the court like brett kavanaugh for example who got it right in that heller too just his dissent <coughs> in uh, district of columbia versus heller uh 2011 i think it was and right I really and we, yeah yeah i mean we the Bruin case was six to three. So right. we were in a little bit better stead there, but we yeah. don't know what's going to happen. The Supreme court has just taken a, a new case. That'll be heard this coming term, uh, United States versus Rahimi. And, um, the fifth circuit court of appeals invalidated the federal ban on possession of a firearm by a person who's subject to a domestic restraining order. The mm. problem with that law is that uh, anytime you got two people getting a divorce, they'll yeah. sign papers mutually agreeing not to attack each other, right? Now, right, why not? right, 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 right. And, and once you do that, uh, you're a felon if you possess a gun. So yeah. in the Rahimi case, he he's not a model citizen, uh, but the Supreme Court took that case, and we're going to see what they'll do next. Because um, um, the, the funny thing is the so-called liberal justices if it's a, a murderer or somebody who's a really bad person, they don't have any problem at all ruling in favor of that person. <laughs> yes. Um, and sometimes you have the more yeah. conservative justices like Alito wanting to stick it to them. Uh, mm -hmm. But on, on the Second Amendment, those liberals love these laws that uh, put incarcerate you, give you a felony conviction for nothing, for some technical violation that doesn't hurt anybody. That's where we're at. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, I know we're at your time limit there, Steve, but I really love talking to you about this stuff. And like the, like I said, that this book is so lovely. I enjoyed every second I was reading it and I was thinking, man, I'm going to use this in class. The first chance I get, do you have anything to add Heather? Uh, you'll be happy Steve? to know that every single class I teach, mostly women, I let them know. I first I ask them, does anyone know what AR in AR-15 stands for? 
And I get a lot of answers, but then I tell them the right one. So they walk out knowing what exactly AR stands for. It's not assault rifle. No. Not automatic rifles. So I feel good knowing at least they uh, can walk out knowing what the correct term is. Yeah, read my lips. It's Armalite. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book is America's Rifle, The Case for the Air 15 by Stephen P. Hallbrook. Um, it is a it's academic, but it's not academic. -y. It's very interesting and has a lot of helpful background on very easy to very uh, wonderfully explained complex statutory stuff. And sometimes the nature of the material gets a little bit crazy. It's the nature of the material. It's not the author. <laughs> it's, it's the fact that the material will will hurt your brain. And uh, I, this is the easiest I've ever seen it explained. So I really appreciate you coming on again, Dr. Hallbrook. Well, thank you, Lucas, for having me. Uh, Heather, nice to meet you. Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, I've been on the show once before, I think. And uh, yeah, yeah. I hope you two have a, a good continuing discussion. Okay. Thank you. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Okay. Okay. Well, that was really refreshing. I always love when he gives us his, a bit of his time. Um, so what did you think, Heather? I think he's very interesting and so full of knowledge. And like you said, very humble. Uh, yes, in he his is. Book and he doesn't mention, oh, by the way, that was my case. Like, right. Yeah, break it down fairly easily. So that's good. So I don't know if you caught it, but he he mentioned it in the book. He only mentions he was the attorney if he lost. <laughs> oh. But the big cases that he won in front of the Supreme Court, he doesn't mention that he was the guy. Um, but uh, like, for example, the Fresno case, the Fresno Rifle and Pistol Association, I think it was called. That was the first challenge, I think, to the in 1989 assault weapon ban in California. And he was the lead counsel on that. And they lost that case. I mean, they were just dismissed out of, I mean, it was just, they didn't even got, they didn't, they weren't even heard really. Um, so frustrating. So, yeah. So now I know you don't have a lot of like um, experience with the AR-15 or you don't have like, you don't, you're not gushing about it or anything like that, but do you, does that translate into a desire to see it removed from no. the streets? No. <laughs> No, not at all. Especially after I always think about when people are trying to remove it from the streets. Like I think about that nine month pregnant woman in Florida whose home was broken into. It's like, so you want to remove that from a nine month pregnant woman? Like this was the gun of her choice. Um, clearly, she felt comfortable to defend her family, her husband from multiple intruders. So um, just because I choose a handgun, I think anyone else's choice, but they decide to defend their lives with yeah well and you post a lot of videos because i follow her on instagram everybody well what's your instagram handle instagram is high caliber underscore nc so i had to change it from oc from california to nc for north carolina and it's high hi or high h-i-g okay so um you post a lot of videos of you shooting and you you look like you know what you're doing so, but it's usually with like uh, a 
pistol. So what got you interested in firearms? That would be my husband, Tyler. Um, he was in the Navy and then he joined the um, LA County Sheriff's Department. And then I remember he went back into the Navy Reserves and he was gone for about three weeks in Virginia. And I had my young daughter at home. He's kind of showing me, you know, I'm going to be gone. So you're on your own. <laughs> so I, hmm. I just felt so much safer having that, the, you know, the knowledge of the firearm there. And then definitely working for the California Rifle Pistol Association, I learned so much, um, not only about Second Amendment rights, but just constitutional rights in general. And we would shoot and then I would start having friends ask me like, wait, where do you work? Can you teach me how to shoot? And then it was like friends of friends, like strangers, you taught so-and-so how to shoot. Can you teach me how to shoot? And then I really got um, involved in instruction and, and teaching classes on my own after that. Yeah. Well, you're a recurring guest, and so it's great to see you again, obviously. Uh, but the, well, the wonderful thing about this book is, even if you're just a pistol person, mm -hmm. there's so much history uh, in here about the statutes and, and like the reasoning why they passed the statute and what was their concern at the time and mm -hmm. what they were ignoring at the time. It's very interesting uh, data, and it does apply oftentimes to pistols. Uh, so for example, he has a, a chapter where he talks about the 1968 act, which banned a lot of the importation of the so-called Saturday night special. Have you heard of the, those Saturday night special Saturday night special is a small gun that was typically associated with crime, but like the little, you know, the pocket pistols basically. Mm -hmm. oh, and well, well, like, you know, like the Colt, uh, Colt made a little 25 auto, mm -hmm. um, the Berettas, they made, uh, little 25 autos, 22 pistols, stuff that you could put in your pocket. Sometimes they were snub nosed revolvers. You know, those were called Saturday night specials. Yes. And as, uh, Hallbrook points out, and it's wonderful that he points this out in the book he points out that those oftentimes were cheaper guns that minorities would be able to afford. Mm -hmm. And so what, what, what it did was it priced out self-protection for minorities. That's basically what it did. That was the start of it. Well, uh, for 1968 act, that was, and that, that was kind of like the major crime. That was the first time in, uh, well, actually, uh, the, the first ban on mere possession would have been 1986. So that was, it was the time before that things got started getting really bad when there was a ban on mere possession, not linked with anything that Congress could actually do because can't, Congress can't just say in the constitution, it can't just say you're a criminal now mm -hmm. or kind of like what the ATF is doing at the moment. Yeah. They're not even Congress. That all started in my lifetime and your lifetime. It all started very recently in our history. Yeah. And since the, the test is history and tradition, there's not a longstanding history of that. Then it's, it really should be suspicious under the yeah. second amendment. Yeah. Well, what do you think about maybe just share a bit about what it's like to be a firearm educator? How's that going? Because I talked to you like last year 
how how long ago did I talk to you on this? It was probably about a year ago, I would about say. a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How's that um, going? It's great. Yeah. So last week I had one of my biggest classes. We held it at a clothing boutique. I think kind of a sketchy person came into the boutique and the owner said, she, you know, she called me. She's like, I'm getting everybody their concealed carry permit. So uh, a lot of the workers there, um, a lot of the women who frequent the shop, they came in. It's probably the cutest concealed carry course I've ever taught, but we had about 15 women and they all passed and we had a great time. Um, I started a ladies night. So the very first Thursday of the month, we all go shoot. And it was really fun. Um, I think it was two days before the Kentucky Derby. I said, all right, ladies, we're all going to shoot with our big hats and we're going to shoot some big guns. So I brought out the shotgun and a 45 and we all had our big hats and our big guns. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. Now you shot a shotgun. Was it a 12 gauge? It was a 12 gauge. Yeah. Okay. And you've shot an AR-15, which is harder to shoot. Which one is harder? Yeah. Probably, probably the pump shotgun because just because there's like that action but yeah. um and then well, what, about, what about the kick yeah and there's just... definitely bigger kick i would say with the shotgun so but yeah. i just remember thinking those ars were so heavy really um, yeah wow you can find a lighter ar for me or just treat it as a workout might get my arm reps in <laughs> when i shoot the ar well, I always like hearing what you have to say, uh, uh, Heather. You you feature prominently in my feed when I come up uh, on on this stuff, and you you're constantly assaulting those who would assault the Second Amendment. So I salute you. What I try to do. <laughs> do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, let's see. I'm I'm also writing a book about shooting in all 50 states at the end of August. Maybe uh, it might actually be. September 1st is when I will shoot in Alaska and that'll be my 50th state. And the book's called 50 States in My Sight. So it should be out, I would say, hopefully by November. Well, as soon as it comes out, I will see it on Instagram, I'm assuming, and we'll have to have you come on and talk about it. Sounds good. Um, But I warn you. If you come on, it'll sell a million copies. Okay. <laughs> so just be ready for that. I will be ready for that. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for co-hosting uh, this with me, Heather Allen uh, yeah, from North Carolina. You guys, yeah. Thanks so much for yeah. inviting me along with you guys. I appreciate it. And thank you for what you do for the Second Amendment. Thank you for everything you do for college students. You are so needed today. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. See you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.